0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Uh, baptism following the twelve o'clock hour. Make your way out to the uh, basketball courts, and we'd love to have you join us there. We've got about fifteen folks being baptized. Uh, they'll give a brief word of testimony, and then we'll celebrate their their faith in the Savior as they proclaim it publicly to each of us. We have spent the month of August looking at a mini series I've entitled "Then and Now." We're looking at uh, what was happening in the nation of Israel then and what's happening now. Yeah, Mark, you want to come turn that off. It's buzzing pretty bad. Uh, So we're looking at what happened to the nation of Israel then and what's happening to them now or what's happening in our culture now and uh, looking at the comparison and contrast Between the two of those. So we find ourselves wrapping up the study. Next week, if you've been here, how many of you have heard Stuart Briscoe when he's preached here? Uh, Our friend, uh, I just love hearing Stuart. He's going to be here next Sunday. Great time to invite friends and family to be with us. Stuart uh, is still going strong in the Lord. Brilliant mind, uh, 84 years old, traveling the world talking about Jesus, he and Jill, and he'll be sharing with us as we kick off our Justice for All series. So uh, great opportunity for us uh, as a body. Cultural chaos, cultural chaos we're talk about this morning. The, the chaos of the culture then, and the chaos of the culture now. Father, we pray now that as we look at the word that you would teach us, we pray that Christ will be honored. And God, I pray that we'll leave this morning with hope, hope of what a Savior can do in a dark world, then and now. In Christ's name, amen. I don't handle chaos very well, as you know. I mean, if you've been at TBC for any length of time, you know that I'm OCD, and uh, messes and chaos bother me, and uh, so especially when it comes to cleanliness, and especially when it comes to uh, the, the home keeping things uh, in order, and uh, my office as well. Uh, in my mind, a kitchen sink is not a receptacle for dirty dishes, but a place to wash dry and pick dishes up. Amen. Amen. Some of you say, what are you talking about? In my mind, a trash can in the house is a temporary holding place for things to go into the big can in the garage every night. I mean, you go, you empty it, it you don't need trash in your house overnight. I'm not saying my way is the only way, but I'm saying it is the best way, okay? (laughs) And uh, so for the first time in my life, somebody said, Gary, have you ever watched Hoarders? And I said, I I don't know what you're talking about, I've seen brief clips, and so uh, I watched Hoarders the other day for the first time, and... uh, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. People really live like this. I mean, some of you are saying, how'd they get in my apartment and take pictures? How'd they get my, I don't understand what, what the problem is. And uh, I, I look at stuff like that. And when I turned that off, I couldn't get through the whole program. I mean, I, I, I just couldn't. When, when, when I got to the end of that, I, uh, I, that's, I'm sure that's Photoshopped in. Um, when I got to the end of that, I had to go take a shower and take a tranquilizer and go to sleep that night. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's utter chaos. I mean, I just can't even begin to imagine living life that way. But those pictures reflect the chaos of Israel then, and I think of us now. I I, I mean, those pictures picture a world in total chaos. And if you look on the bulletin that I gave you this morning, I think it has an acrostic on it, we're going to look at chaos. We're going to look at chaos, the chaos then, the chaos now. And and when I look at those pictures and and think about those things, I think... um, First of all, I don't know how anybody could live that way, but secondly, uh, it's a reflection, I think, that's, it, it, they're, they're metaphoric, if you will, for our culture. The nation of Israel is in chaos, like those houses were, and the reason they were in chaos is because of this. In those days, there was no king in the land, and every did, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the nation of Israel is leaderless, and because of that leaderlessness, because there's nobody there to lead them, whatever anybody wanted to do was all right with them. And so you do your thing, I do my thing, and it's okay. Well, that works for a little while, but we're going to see, as we have seen the last three weeks, and we'll see this morning, that chaos abounds when there is no law. The nation was leaderless, immorality was rampant, behavior was decadent, turmoil was constant. And I'm an optimist. I I mean, I'm an optimist. I can't wait for tomorrow because I love every day that God gives me. But when I look at the culture then and the culture now, I recognize that we're a long way from where God wants us to be. But at the flip side, we have great opportunity in the midst of a darkened culture to be a light for Jesus. And so that's where the optimism should come in for every one of us. The recognition that maybe there was not a king in that land, but there is a king in this land. That king is Jesus. Amen. And so we're going to follow after him. We're going to obey him and we're going to do his bidding. So whenever a culture is in chaos, there's deterioration. There's deterioration, first of all, in the culture itself, in the society of the culture itself, and that's reflected in Judges chapter 19. And specifically here, it has to do with the area of sexuality and immorality. We're going to see that the barriers start coming down, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, and it becomes great freedom to, for, for sexual immorality, rampant sexual immorality to take place in the nation. Follow along in the story, Judges 19. It came about, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel, verse we just looked at. There was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the uh, hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem to Judah. Now, the Levites were the priestly tribe, and so you've got a guy from the priestly tribe who has a concubine concubine was a uh, woman on the side basically uh, she had no legal rights her children would have legal rights she was treated mostly with respect by the, the man that she was with and so you've got a religious leader taking uh, advantage of a woman basically you're a religious leader who ha- has a woman on the side that was then i'm glad that doesn't happen now right a religious leader with a woman on the side, I look at some statistics this week, 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce this year. Amazing, 50%. Or not this year, but over a lifetime, 50%, over a lifetime. Uh, here's a statistic for you. Barna did a survey, 40% of 1,000 pastors polled, so they had an extramarital affair since beginning their ministry. Some point in time in the life of their ministry, they were involved in that. That was That's now. So when we look at life then, we recognize we've got the same battle now, that deterioration takes place in the culture. So you you have a religious leader who basically has a woman on the side, it happened then, it happens now. It's a problem. And what happens is his concubine leaves. Look at verse 2. But his concubine played the harlot against him. And she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem. So this guy has a concubine, that is, it's a woman who is part of the household, treated with respect, would have children, the children be heirs, but she herself had no legal rights. And so you've got this lady and she takes off, she plays a harlot, she goes back to her daddy's house. Then her husband went after her, verse 3, and he began to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him a servant and a couple of donkeys. So he would he goes to father-in-law's house, and he wants to woo his concubine back. He cares for her. He must love her. He's willing, in spite of her unfaithfulness, to bring her back home. So that's the scenario. He goes to father-in-law's house. He wants to bring his, uh, his concubine home, his wayward uh, woman, back to the fold. So the father-in-law asked him to stay, and he asked him to stay, and uh, he has him for several days. Verse 8 of chapter 19, on the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning. So he is now at his in-law's house for five days. Nothing's happened. There's not an agreement yet, but now the father-in-law has finally said, you can take my daughter back with you. So they're going to head back to the peace and security of the home. And so after five days, they get up, they're headed back home. So you have the scenario. Father-in-law exercises ancient nearest in hospitality, insists that his son-in-law stays there, he sticks around for five days, and now it's time for him to go back home. You're thinking, what does this guy do? I mean, well, he's a religious leader, so you know, he only worked weekends, so he had to get back for the next weekend, right? That's what they told me when I took this job. In fact, when they hired me, the search committee said, Pastor Gary, uh, we're going to give you three weeks vacation from the beginning. If, if, if you're good, you're going to need it. If you're not good, we're going to need it. And, and so this guy goes back. He's got, he's got his concubine. It's a couple of days' journey. So on the way back, he decides to stop in this town of Gibeah. And if you drop down to verse 15, they turned aside in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. Well, if you're going to lodge in a city in the ancient Near East back at that time, uh, there were no Motel 6s that left the light on for you. There was no Holiday Inn Express. There was not a Hilton. There was not a Hyatt. It usually stayed in someone's home. Sometimes there would be in, sometimes not. And so basically what happened, you go to the center of town, and there somebody might have a bed and breakfast, or what we would call a bed and breakfast today, and they would go and they would take you in, Uh, maybe they would give you a place to stay, maybe they would charge you, but it's where you found people. Anciently recent hospitality would be extended to the people in the center of town without a place to stay. And so they go there, verse 15, and they enter and they sit in the open square, but no one takes them in to spend the night. There's nobody there to offer them to come to the night. None of the people of Gibeah offered hospitality as they should have done. So there's there's a guy from Ephraim, a, a different place. It's in the hill country. Verse 16, there was a man from the hill country of Ephraim. That's a little west of Fredericksburg, by the way. And he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. So Gibeah is where the tribe of Benjamin is from. These guys are Benjamites. So we've got the players we've got a man who's headed back to his home with his concubine. He's going to spend the night in Gibeah, which is in the land of the Benjamites. Nobody takes him in. So there's a guy who's doing itinerant work there. He's from Ephraim. He's an older man. And he comes to him and says, where are you going? Where are you from? And he said, well, we're passing from Bethlehem to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. And I'm from there. And I went to Bethlehem and now I'm going to the house and no one will take me into their house. I have straw for my donkeys, I've got bread and wine for me and my maidservant and the young man, so we don't lack anything, we just need a place to stay. And so he invites them in, verse 21, he took them into his house and gave donkeys and fodder and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And if we could stop it there, we'd have a great lesson in hospitality. We would say, even though the people of Gibeah were inhospitable, we have a gentleman who took them in and he showed hospitality. We make some points on that. And the importance of being hospitable in the midst of a dark culture, importance of having people in your home, et cetera, et cetera. But the story does not stop there. The story takes a slide into decadence. The story takes a slide into chaos. Watch what happens. I mean, Jerry Springer couldn't make this up. I mean, it gets absolutely awful. Verse 22, while they were making merry, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounded on the door. They spoke to the owner of the house, the old man. They said, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relationship with him. What? Bring out the man who showed up at your house and they're pounding on his door so we can have relationship with him. These are men looking for a man. And it goes on. The man, the owner of the house, verse 23, went out to them and said, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly since the man is coming to my house. Don't commit this act of folly. In fact, here's my virgin daughter, and here is his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them. And that's not ravish in a good way. That you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. You talk about chaos. You talk about a culture going south and deteriorating. Here it is. Men seeking after men, a father offering his daughter, a man offering his wife. And you're thinking, what kind of world is that? Where men would go after men, People would sacrifice their own kids. What kind of world is that? Certainly that was then. And certainly that doesn't happen now. Right. Right. I mean, when we read through this, our hearts skip a beat when we think about our culture and our society and what's happening. You see, my friends, when anything goes, everything goes. When anything, when there's no king in the land, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. When, when anything goes, then everything goes and everything's okay. And why stand against it? By the way, write, write in your notes, jot in your notes, uh, Genesis chapter 19, take a look at it a little later. Same scenario happens in a city called Sodom. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? You get those names the guy in Sodom was a guy named Lot. You remember that? Two angels come to, to Lot's house, and uh, Lot brings them to his house. All of a sudden, there's pounding on his door, Genesis 19, and uh, the men of the city have gathered. Same Hebrew word is used there. We want to have relations with them. The idea of sexual relations, uh, we want to have relationship, relations with them. Uh, so bring them out. And he says, no, but I've got two virgin daughters. You can have them. What kind of culture is that? Men seeking men, fathers offering daughters. I mean, what kind of world is that? Well, when, when there's chaos in a culture, when there's no king in land, everybody does what's right in their own eyes, the, the culture falls apart. Now, one of the biggest battles in our culture right now is the issue of homosexuality. I mean, it's a major battle. You can't read this section without talking about it. I, I've received hundreds of emails since the Supreme Court decision, literally hundreds of emails, not hundreds of maybe, anxiety, dozens of emails, uh, over the past few months. And... Uh, I want us to have a biblical response to homosexuality. I want us to understand what the Word talks about, not what man talks about, not what the Supreme Court talks about, not what culture talks about, but what the Bible talks about. So in the Scriptures, let me just give you four brief points. God created marriage to be between a man and a woman. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Scriptures are very clear. Marriage is to be monogamous, that's one husband, one wife. Marriage is to be heterosexual between a man and a woman. Marriage is to be for a lifetime. When we begin to violate God's commands, and here's the reality, we will scream and howl about homosexuality. What about the other two parts, monogamy and for a lifetime? So we need to make sure we're consistent in our theology here. We need to make sure we're consistent in our teaching here. So first point is marriage between a man and a woman. Secondly, homosexuality is sin and prohibited by God. And you say, Gary, that's a pretty bold statement. That's a pretty blatant statement. I mean, you're you're in our face on that. I mean, especially for our young people who have grown up hearing tolerance, tolerance, tolerance their whole lives. How can you say that, Gary? Well, I say it because that's what the Word of God says. The Word of God says do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. It's detestable. Detestable. The Word of God says, if a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, they are to to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Really, Gary? In that same chapter in Leviticus, this is Leviticus chapter 20, let me read to you something earlier in that chapter. See, we read this, and some of us on the inside, you're not going to do it here, but on the inside, we're saying, yeah, that's good. Let me read this to you. Same chapter, verse 10. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Amen? (laughs) Not a lot of amens on that one, huh? And some of you say, "Man, I'm glad we're not under the law anymore. I'm glad we don't have to. Do I'm glad we're not as well." But here's the reality: if we're going to do our theology correctly, we have to recognize sin is sin, and there's no sin greater than any other sin. And so we're quick to scream out against this sin, but what about screaming out against the other sin? And so we need balance here. We need theological balance. Um, Any, as with any sin, homosexuality can be overcome. Uh, We have several folks in our body who were involved in the gay lifestyle for a number of years who've come out of that lifestyle to either be asexual or heterosexual. And it's amazing. We're going to have a couple of testimonies in the future, and uh, you're going to hear testimonies of folks who've been involved in that lifestyle who came to Christ while they were in that lifestyle since come out. Write down the name Rosaria, R-O-S-A-R-I-L, Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield. Google up her name and listen to her testimony. Brilliant woman, PhD professor, Syracuse University for a number of years. Involved in the lifestyle, a leader in in, in that whole movement, who now gives testimony of what Jesus has done in her life and the freedom she has. Many families in our body are affected by this issue. And we need to make sure we have a biblical response. And not only a biblical response, but a loving response. Come overcome any sin. If if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. No matter your sin, the area of sexuality, the area of finance, the area of gluttony, the area of anger, the area of you name it, You can become a new creature in Christ and get rid of the old stuff. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. Do not let sin reign in your body so you obey its evil desires. So the final point I'll make on this, and then we'll move on. For many homosexuals, the church is not a place. It's it's a place of pain and not a place of refuge. You you take the word homosexual out there and put anybody in there. We want TBC to be a place of refuge. We're going to call sin, sin. We're going to deal with it as we should, but we want it to be a place of refuge where folks can meet Jesus, know Jesus, walk with Jesus, honor Jesus, overcome whatever the lifestyle is we're involved in. See, the biggest problem in a congregation this size is not homosexuality. It's going to be immorality heterosexually. The guy looking at porn last night. It's going to be materialism and greed. I like my stuff. You like your stuff? I like my stuff. I, I tend to be materialistic at times. That tend to be a a lot of times. So let's make sure that we're calling people to what we should call them to. If I speak with a ton of men and angels and don't have love, I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Uh, The first sign of chaos, deterioration of the culture. Is it happening now? I, I went in my office, read the news this morning, came in early intentionally. Read CNN's website, Fox News' website, CBS, ABC. We live in a society called chaos. Police officer filling his car up in Houston just murdered on the spot. Chaos. A culture gone crazy. And we recognize this was happening then, and it's also happening now. It, well, it gets worse. You want to know what happens? Look at this story. I mean, it's almost Dave Tate and our high, taught judges in our high school department last year. He said when he came to Judges chapter 19, in the midst of reading the story, he just stopped because he couldn't read it anymore. He said it was so vile and so crass that he couldn't read it anymore. So what happens? We pick up the story in Judges 19, beginning in verse 24. Here's my virgin daughter, here's his concubine, ravish them, don't take this man. So in verse 25, they wouldn't listen to him. So they seized the concubine. They brought her out. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. And then they let her go at the approach of dawn. So he sends the concubine out, and she is raped by all these men. Just abused over and over and over and over. degraded over and over and over and over. It's just tragic. Just tragic. When a culture is in chaos, one of the first things to go or sexual boundaries. And that's what Judges shows us. Happening then, it's happening now. Well, you move on. The, the next thing that, that, that is lost is the home. We don't have to speak much about that. We, we see what's happening here, but let me just bring out to you the evidence here is a man who's giving up his concubine. So it's like a husband giving up his wife or a father who's giving up his daughter. You know, that, that was then. Now, it, it takes place as well. Uh, families giving up kids. I mean, look at these stats. These are stats on child abuse. Approximately five children die every day because of child abuse. Some of you have worked in ERs. Some of you have worked and seen this firsthand, the tragedy of this. Um, One out of three girls in America, this is America only, one out of five boys will be sexually abused before they reach age 18. As you know, Bev has recently written a book, NAF Press will publish it next year. It has to do with abuse she experienced when she was a young girl. She speaks in conferences. Women line up to talk to her after those conferences. Because one in every three girls and one in every five boys will be abused before they reach age 18. What a heartbreak. Some of you were there. My dear wife was there. Breaks your heart. Just breaks your heart. 90% 90% of sexual abuse of children are known, the perpetrator is known to them. 70% almost are abused by a family member. Mom or dad, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle. I mean, it just breaks your heart. It's a culture in chaos. In 2012, 82% of child abuse perpetrators, those who did the abusing, were between 18 and 44. 40% were 25 to 34 years old. 14% of all men, 30% of all, 36% of all women, this is America, in prison where abused as children. I think those stats are very low. Some of our dear friends here in prison ministry can tell you, I mean, those stats are low. See, what happens is when a culture begins to deteriorate, the home goes. And here's a guy saying, take my daughter. Why don't you let him take your life? Isn't that what a real man does? Let a real man stand up for his family and say, hey, you can't have not only this guy, but you can't have the women in this house as well. God bless men who are willing to stand up for their families. Some of you ladies have a man you know that will protect it to his death. Hey, if he's here with you right now, why don't you put your arm around him and thank God for him. Hey, you've got men here, I love seeing that. Would reach over and kissing them right now. Go ahead and do it. Some of you haven't kissed in church since you got married. I mean, you do. You have a man sitting next to you who will go to the stake for you. You're blessed. You've got a mama. She, she's like a mama bear. Somebody touches her cubs, God help them. Because that mama's going to do everything she can to protect her kids. There are a group of men who are fishing in Alaska. Patrick Marley tells this story. And they had gone in by pontoon plane. They fished all day. The plane got ready to take off at night. Unbeknownst to them, the plane had taken on too much water in one of the pontoons that had a hole in it. When they got ready to take off, the plane went down. It crashed. There were three men, and one of the men had his 12-year-old son with him, and they jumped into the icy water to head for the shore. The water was cold. The riptide was strong. The the three men were going to make it to the shore, but they heard the 12-year-old boy calling as the tide was taking him out. His father, who was close to the shore, thinking his son was right behind him, recognized what happened, was happening. And he turned around, went to his son, put his arms around him. The last time the two friends saw the man and his son as they were taken out to sea. That's what God called us to do. That's what our Savior's done for us. But when a culture goes to chaos, the womb becomes the most dangerous place in America. When a culture goes into chaos, stuff like this happens. I mean, both my son and son-in-law physicians. We talked, Daniel's a pediatrician, and we talked about what it was like. He was in Washington, D.C. for his residency. And we talked about some of the things he experienced and saw. It just breaks your heart breaks your heart. I get a phone call with him in tears. Two different occasions. Dad, you, you can't believe what I just had to go through. You can't believe what these poor kids had to go through. See, when a, when a culture turns us back upon God, that's what happens. The, the culture deteriorates, the home deteriorates, the attitudes toward life deteriorates. So what happens next, I, I mean, it it, goes, it it gets even worse than this. The lady is abused by all of these men, beginning in verse 27. When the master of the house got up in the morning, he opened the door, he went out, and the concubine is lying at the doorpost of the house with her hands on the threshold. She was coming back from safety after being abused by these men. And he said to her, get up and let's go, but there was no answer. She had died. They had abused her so much, she died. So he placed her on the donkey, went back to his home. He enters a house. He took a knife. He laid hold of the concubine. He cut her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. I mean, he, 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 he chops up her body, sends her via Federal Express or camel, whatever they did, and her body goes to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a message to the tribes. It's a message to tribes, consider, take counsel, what's happened this day. The end of verse 30, speak up. The beginning of verse 30, nothing like this has ever happened in our land, ever. I mean, this is absolutely insane. This lady comes out, she's abused by all these men, she dies. He sends her body parts to different places because uh, he wants the rest of the Israelites to know what's happened here. We need to take revenge against the Benjamites in Gibeah who did this to this woman. And so her body parts are shipped off. There's a council among the the, the the tribes of Israel, and you see the cheap value of life when a culture goes south. And you see it in this chapter because what happens is there's killings all over the place. I mean, one woman dies, but now almost a whole nation is going to be destroyed. It happens over and over and over again. I mean, she's dead. The value of life is cheap. So you go to chapter twenty, you drop down to verse twenty-one. The Gibeonites are fighting the other 11 tribes of Israel, the Benjamites rather. So in verse 21, the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground. And they day, 22,000 men of Israel. So out of the 11 tribes, 22,000 men die. And then you go to verse 25, the next day, 18,000 men die. And then you drop all the way down to verse 44, 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. And then there's 5,000 in the next verse, and 2,000 in the next verse, and 25,000 men. And now they're down. Look at verse 47. But 600 men were spared. So you've got this whole tribe, the Benjamites. They are the ones who are guilty. And all of a sudden, life is cheap. We're just going to kill them all. We'll get rid of all of them. And so there are 600 men left out of over 25,000. Dead bodies, corpses everywhere. As you know, we have a sister church in Rwanda. I've been privileged to go to Rwanda. Several of you have. I've been there several times. And you know, when folks there begin to relive the killings and you watch them tear up and you watch them share their experiences and the great pain they've been through, it it just tears at your heart. Over a million people killed in the first four months of the killings that begin in April of 1994, 90% died by machete neighbor against neighbor, friend against friend, colleague against colleague, family against family we're saying, how can that happen? We look at this and say, well, these were uneducated people living back then. And we're saying, it just happened in the 1990s. In the 1940s, 11 million Jews massacred in concentration camps. And, and, and we look around our world and you look at the newspaper. and I, I looked and I counted seven different episodes this morning on the news, seven different episodes of people being murdered last night. I know more than that happened. That's just the ones I saw in the headlines. It happened then, it's happening now. There was no king in the land. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. You live in chaos. Culture goes south. The home goes south. The value of life goes south. And you kill a whole tribe. And in my mind, I'm thinking, who's going to stand up and say, enough, stop, alto, alto, stop. In different times, there were different men who did these things. I mean, I went backwards, I'm sorry. There are different men who did these things. This is a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius was brought before an emperor named Theodotus, and Theodotus said, do you not know that you stand against the world? He was standing up for the deity of Jesus against all these false teachers that teaching teaching Jesus is not God. Athanasius' response to Theodotus, the, the emperor, was, then I shall stand against the world. Then there's this guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Alexandria. Polycarp was going, to be exiled, was going to be killed, burned at the stake, because he would not recant of his faith in Jesus. And so a different emperor, or proconsul, rather, a governor brought him in and it said, you will die in the fire. You know what Polycarp's response was? Here's his response. Let me read it to you so I don't get it wrong. He turned to the governor, and these were his words. He said, the fire you threaten me with burns for an hour, but then it's quenched. But the fire you will experience will be everlasting. Hey, Dove. You want to talk? Let's talk. Uh, It'll take an hour to burn me up, but if you don't repent, you spend eternity burning. Then there's uh, Tim uh, Tim Cartwright. Peter Cartwright. (laughs) Looks like Tim, doesn't it? Yep. Look at that smile. Philadelphia boy, too, probably. Tim. Tim's our junior high pastor, if you're new here. Uh, Peter Cartwright, one of my favorite stories in American history. Peter Cartwright is pastoring a Lord's church. He's speaking. Uh, as he's man- mounting his way, there's these pulpits that you kind of walk up, you know, a spiral pulpit. As he's walking up, Deacon pulls on his coat and says, uh, Pastor Cartwright, uh, guard your words I under- because President Jackson is here. Andrew Jackson. Peter Cartwright mounts a the pulpit. These are his words. I understand President Jackson is here. President Jackson we welcome you. I've been requested to guard my remarks. I have this to say, President Jackson, if you do not repent of your sins, you go to hell like everyone else. <laughs> I bet he voted for the other party next time. <laughs> the congregation was shocked. They wondered what the, how the president would respond. After the service, President Jackson went straight to Peter Cartwright. His words were, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Where are the people like that? Culture headed into chaos. Then there's this guy. We have anybody who studied economy out there? Anybody major in economy? Nobody? was boring. I didn't do it either. <laughs> His name is Ken Elzinga. If you major in economy, studied economy, took economy, he is the most decorated professor on the University of Virginia campus today. When he was 26 years old, he began to teach at the University of Virginia about four decades ago. And uh, he was a strong young man of faith. A fellow tenured professor knew of his faith and said, I advise you, if you want to be tenured, if you want to stay on this track, keep your faith to yourself. He was horrified about a week later when he had agreed to speak for a campus crusade gathering. uh, I'm sorry, a gathering of navigators, a, a, a campus organization. And he had agreed to speak, and he walked through the halls of his, uh, where his office was in the business department, and he saw his picture on a, on a flyer with him speaking about his faith in Jesus. As he walked through campus, he saw several of those. In his mind is another other professor saying, you won't be tenured. And, and his other voice is you must speak of your faith. He went back that night and took those posters off the wall, those flyers off the wall, several places. He went back and according to his words, I could not sleep. I was convicted by the Spirit of God. He rose early in the morning and put every flyer back up he had taken down. He spoke of his faith of Christ openly on the UVA campus, one of the more liberal campuses in America. In the four decades since, Elzinga has been named Professor of the Year more times than any professor in the history of the University of Virginia. His faith in Christ is boldly spoken to students and to others as he tells what a difference the Savior made in his life and kin and theirs. There they are. Men, women, who boldly speak for the Savior. But let me caution you. When you do that, do it the right way. In your hearts, revere Christ. Be prepared to give an answer. But do this with what? What? Read it with me. But do this with gentleness and respect. Mean Christians demean the name of Jesus. Be careful how you do it. Do it with love. Do it with respect. Do it with care. I mean, demonstrate care to to those who you speak to. Do it with, don't be harsh. Don't be harsh. Don't be like the little kid. His mom looked out the window. They had a litter of six kittens and she was watching. She thought it was funny when she watched Johnny playing church with the kitchens. He had his kittens. He had his Bible out. He had the kittens out there. They're moving around. They're in a basket, and uh, they're moving around. He's preaching to them, playing like it's church. She turned around to do some work. She turns around. She hears screaming outside, kittens meowing and scratching and whatever else, and she looks outside. She sees Johnny pick up a kitten, put it down in the swimming pool, pull it back up. <laughs> she watched him do it two times. She went running out there and said, Johnny, stop that. You're going to drown those kittens. Johnny looked at it with great conviction. He said, they should have thought about that before they joined my church. (laughs) That's pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Don't do it with harshness. Do it with generous respect. Offensive behavior of the people. Let me tell you what happens next. In the final chapter in Judges, you can read it yourself. The Benjamites are left without. When when the nation of Israel went to the village of Benjamites, they killed all the women. So there's 600 Benjamites, and they don't have wives. They find 400 virgin girls from another tribe, another group. They bring them to, to the Benjamites, and the, the men of Israel, those tribes of Israel, agreed not to give their women to the Benjamites, so they come up with a plan. The elders concoct the plan. and They say, well, we can't give you our, women, our, our young girls, our daughters, but here's what we can do. If you kidnap them, obviously we've not given them to you. What? Yeah, It's there. You can read it. Read Judges 21. We don't have time to read it all. If you kidnap these women, we've not given to you. So wink, wink, wink. It's okay. So they set up an ambush planned by the elders. I mean, it's the elder. I mean, in Judges 21, I mean, it's pretty amazing to read in verse 16, the elders of the congregation, what shall we do for the wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin's? And so they come up, we can't give our wives, so we're going to tell you where you can find the girls that you can have. It's almost like Boko Haram in Nigeria right now capturing all these kids, these, these young girls. And so the offensive behavior of the people is followed up by a self-serving lifestyle. And it's chaos. And so the whole book of Judges ends with this verse, twenty-one twenty-five. In those days, there was no king in the land. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. When anything goes, everything goes. But I'm here today to leave you with hope. There is a king, and he does rule over the nations, and his name is Jesus. And he gave his life for you so that you might know him eternally and abundantly. And when you know him, Everything doesn't go because you submit to him and you do what he asks you to do. And we live in a culture as they did then and we do now that's very dark. But we have this huge spotlight shining on us or that we can shine upon the dark world and tell them who Jesus is. When I was a kid, whenever there was a grand opening to some big department store or whatever, you'd see these lights in the sky, crisscrossing. You remember that? Anybody remember that? You guys have no idea what I'm talking about over there. You have missed so much. I, but, but I can remember, I, I grew up in New Orleans, and uh, we grew up in the suburbs on the other side, and, and so we some nights we'd see those lights, and uh, i go, Dad, uh, me and... But three kids in our block, we're going to go find the lights. And all you had to do was look in the sky. And when you looked in the sky, you get closer and closer and closer because the light was shining brighter and brighter and brighter. And then finally, you turn the corner. And all of a sudden, on the back of a trailer, these two big spotlights just gone through the sky. And they were so bright. Then we get on our bikes and head back home. And you can still see those lights shining. Hey, that's us. If we walk with Jesus and honor Jesus in a dark world, we're like those spotlights shining. And we can say, the light that's shining is the light of my Savior. Can I tell you about him? Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope. In the midst of darkness, thank you for a Savior whose light we shine. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I pray the light of the gospel shines upon your heart and you'll recognize as eternal hope, eternal life found in him. If you know the Savior, I pray you walk with the Savior, honor the Savior. There is a king in this land. There should be a king in your heart. And I pray you'll look like him and you'll respond by telling people the light that's shining is the light of Christ from your life. And if you know the Savior, you're not walking with the Savior, I pray today will be a day of confession and you'll let your light shine for the Savior. Folks will see the change and they'll rejoice with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.